This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our January edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Today, we'll look back on the predictions we made for last year and make a few predictions of what 2023 will bring. Bryce, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Justin. So let's uh, revisit some of what we made predictions around last year. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. We'll start with our COVID predictions. Last January, we said we'd see a massive spike in cases, but lower death rates. And that's kind of what happened. We were at the at the front end of the Omicron wave. I felt like for the first two, three weeks of the semester, like half the class was missing with COVID. But the outcomes weren't, I mean, certainly people were getting really sick and, and, and there were some really uh, awful outcomes, but overall it wasn't as severe. And that was a good thing in general. Yeah. I mean, relative to 2020 and 2021, we had a big wave. We didn't have nearly as much death or hospitalization mm-hmm. and- now here we are a year later, and yeah, COVID's still around. But I think the rest of that prediction was things would kind of be back to normal by now, and it feels kind of like they are. Yeah, I asked when we would be out of masks, sort of uh, you know, at the level of the schools, and we were out of masks by the end of the semester. It was kind of a wild spring semester. We started in the height of you know pandemic numbers, so to speak, as uh, like across our student body, but then by the spring, it was like normal almost. So kind of a wild ride. Normal-ish, certainly. Uh, I mean, we're still kind of in that limbo of returning to whatever the new normal is. But certainly COVID is not the first thing in mind uh, as you go about interacting with other humans. Another prediction we made was around kind of, you know, what would we be doing as a society around remote work, around our relationship with going to work or school sick? And I will just say, at least in my household, we're still trying to figure that out. My kids are missing more school than I did when I was a kid. But at the same time, you know, I do think that that staying home when you're not feeling well and you have something that's communicable is probably smart. So we're, I, we're, we're triangulating on that. It's tricky. Uh, we had an unfortunate incident where my daughter had a choir concert mm. and she was clearly getting sick and we had to be the, the bad guys, the heavies, you know, and we were like, no, your sister has the flu, officially has the flu. You are clearly getting the flu. So no, we're not going to let you go and literally project uh, (laughs) viruses around. And, you know, I mean, it was difficult, but I still think it's the right thing to do. Now, are we getting it all right? No, but I think, you know, hopefully we're making marginal improvements in terms of not spreading germs as frequently. So uh, let's sort of quickly touch on the economy. The word that um, sort of was most salient in the predictions we made around the economy was the word you put out there. And you said, the economy would be messy for most of 2022. And I think that prediction bore out. At the time we recorded, inflation was the most salient issue. But um, yeah, where where, where do we stand now? I feel like describing the economy as messy was apt. It was messy for most of the year. It is still somewhat messy, although it's getting less messy. Yeah. And you you were kind of concerned about labor force participation at that point. It's still the issue. Um, There's still some... 
some missing workers. Certainly, there appear to be some missing workers that are in that kind of older category. Right. People who may have retired and then not come back or people who just retired early and didn't come back, what we kind of normally have back. But, you know, kind of prime age uh, participation and employment are getting close to normal. They kind of fluctuate a little bit. But, sure. But they're still a little, you know, if you just say, look, what's my labor force participation rate in Montana? It is roughly a percent one percentage point below where it was pre-pandemic. Okay. I made a prediction about collegiate athletics. Athletics declining in terms of its uh, primary branding prominence for a university. I'm not sure how that prediction holds up. I don't think we really know yet. But I think a big test case that folks might pay attention to is what's happening at the University of Colorado Boulder. Prominent program that's been struggling for a number of years, and they made a big hire with Deion Sanders. If you think of all the forces that are coalescing in collegiate athletics, the sort of rise of name, image, and likeness compensation, the ability of players to sort of um, make incomes through a variety of channels, and the NCAA having less control over that, Deion Sanders seems like the man for the moment. He was a person that was able to perform at the highest level of his sport, but also made a brand for himself and performed in that side of the sports business to a degree that that you know few had seen before. So being able to operate as a division 1 head coach and and you know at the bowl level at a school that prominent we'll sort of see what uh, what kind of players he can attract and 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 what happens with them. The world of college athletics is still very much in transition yeah. and very much struggling with the forces that Essentially, were initially unleashed by the college football playoff, which basically reduced the prestige available. And then, you know, what we saw was, oh, all the good players decided they wanted to go to the same six schools because those were the only ones that were going to get there. And then, yeah, obviously, transfer portals and image and likeness and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, like I said last year on the podcast, I still think the value in college sports from the university's perspective is it's a lightning rod for creating community. Yes. And as long as it can do that, then that's its value. But if it stops doing that, if it just becomes, I'm not really connected to it. I'm just following players or, you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a means of building community. Then we've really lost our way and we need to just kind of start back over. Yeah, I think that's well put. We talked a little bit about politics. We, we sort of didn't quite go out on too much of a limb here, but I do think the tenor of our prediction was that Democrats might do better than predicted in the midterms. And that, that kind of, we sort of got that one right. Maybe not for the reasons that we articulated a year ago, but um, overall, I mean, I think that the misery index improved a little bit as you, you, you introduced me to the misery index and um, the sort of efficacy of running on corrupted elections. was It was not a good position to run on. And the voters sort of pushed back and voted for people that um, were talking more about policy. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the things that we didn't foresee, obviously, were the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the fact that Republicans really did pick a lot of awful candidates. Um, because, the, you know, the conditions were there for the Republicans to take the odds that we had laid out in that prediction because they had the turnout advantage. They had all of the things. It's just a lot of Republican voters didn't vote for the Republican candidate. Yeah. And, you know, and so we kind of get split. Right. Because, uh, you know, we we were talking about Demo- 
Democrats control versus Republicans control, and we have a split there. So that's right. So that kind of is our quick review of our 2022 predictions. You know, some right, some wrong, some we don't know yet, but that's sort of the fun of it. Let's turn our attention to 2023. And, you know, we foreshadowed a moment ago that, you know, the economy is still messy. Maybe bring us up to speed on your general thoughts about the economy and what we might expect for 2023. Inflation is still too high. Let's benchmark that like what is the optimal level of inflation and do we know or is that should we just not even go there no no i mean the fed has a benchmark right yeah the fed is targeting percent two percent right, 2%, right? Okay. if you're in that range you don't get a lot of disagreement some people disagree whether two is right or three sure. is right or whatever it is so that's the goal right and we are not there yet we do have encouraging signs you know while we call top line inflation or you know year over year inflation is still kind of showing big numbers uh, if you look at the trend, if you look at just more recently, well, what is the three month average? In you know, and it's you know, you can look at it a lot of different ways. Everybody's got a favorite different measure of inflation they're looking at these days, but they all seem to suggest that inflation is coming down. Now, if you try a different set of analysts look at it and they say, well, how much of this inflation that we're seeing is supply side inflation and how much is demand side inflation? And the mess that we had a year ago was because we had both. The supply chain was a mess. We have the war in Ukraine causing energy messes. And then we also had demand side stuff, households with lots of money in the bank and workers, you know, a shortage of workers and people chasing. So, you know, sure, wage demand inflation, side. all of that. So we had both. The supply side factors have really disappeared, mm-hmm. right? We have largely gotten rid of most of the supply side shocks in the past few months. So, but we still have the demand side. And so the big question as we go through this year is, Supply side, in some sense, is the easier thing to fix. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like a machine, right? You can kind of, hey, we're going to work on this and we'll you can fix directly that. work on we're it. We're going to work on that. And, you know, and, and, and the companies have incentives to do so. So the demand side, though, is the harder one, right? And the demand side is where we have this very blunt instrument, interest rate. Essentially, our ability to control the economy is like a kid driver. And the reason I thought of this is I took my kids golfing for the first time, and watching them in a golf cart was interesting. They had different ways of dealing with it, but they were all kind of messy because they don't have the instincts yet. The, the set of information, how hard to hit the gas pedal, mm-hmm. when to take your foot off the gas versus how hard to hit the brakes and what's going on around me. Those are all hard things that we learn. We learn to drive. Yeah. I can drive on autopilot and we just don't ever get there with economic policy making, right? Because the information we have is always, it's coming at this very slow rate. We don't really know how to interpret it because we've only been through so many recessions where we have data. Yeah. Right. The number of recessions that we have, like kind of comprehensive data and people were paying attention to it, it's single digits. Whereas like I've got tens of thousands of hours of driving experience. Our economic policymakers are basically like kid drivers, right? Mm -hmm. They're just basically trying to figure it out. And look, it's even worse because it's like trying to drive by committee. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I'm focused on this and you're focused on this. And I'll tell I'm going to, you know, it's like the bridge on the, you know, the Star Trek Enterprise. People are just talking. This is going on and that's going on. <laughs> and this is going on. And then Jerome Powell's kind of sitting there and, you know, the rest of the governors are like, do we go to this percent or that percent? And essentially we have this very blunt tool. Right. Which is like kind of a hard thing to even get right. And so the question as we enter 2023 is, OK, can we get inflation all the way back down into that comfortable range without crashing the car into the ditch. Right now I feel good because we're seeing the dish inflation. We've turned the corner on inflation, at least so far, without 
any sign of a recession. Yeah. There's a whole host of indicators that the official, you know, the NBR panel that decides for a recession look at. You can look at them. Employment is fine. Income is fine. Consumption is fine. You know, there's just no real indicator. There was some indication that GDP was off, but a lot of that was measurement issues. There's just really no clear indication that we are currently in a recession. So that makes me feel good. Yeah. Right. Dish Inflation appears to be on the right path. We have avoided the recession so far. That said, we still have this blunt instrument. Interest rates are up and they're up a lot. Yeah. And again, for people of our generation, interest rates were kind of a non-factor. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, when you were a bond trader back in the 90s, you might have had to deal with a little bit, but like... Yeah, mortgage rates were like 6 7% back then. I think the 10-year the was around 4% or something. But for 15 years, mortgage rates have been below 5% for the most part. And, you know, when interest rates are low, you kind of go off in this real world and you kind of do low interest rate things. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of then very quickly move into a world where interest rates are not low, all sorts of things now you go, oh, wow, that interest rate thing, it's it's really powerful. It's it real. drives, you know, I mean, it drives the value of the stock market. It drives the value of your business. It drives the value of your home. It drives investment decisions. And what are you in, what, what are people with money investing in? And how much can we deficit finance the things that we want the government to spend? And, you know, all of these very big questions that have been kind of on the back burner are now going to be you know, on the front. So the, you know, the big question is, is, okay, well, how long do we have to keep interest rates up? And then what do high interest rates do to the rest of the economy? Because we already are seeing the disinvestment from high interest rates, which is what the Fed wants. It wants demand to go down, right? You know, people are building fewer houses. People are, you know, there's all sorts of things and it just kind of ripples through. And the question is, is how big do those ripples turn into? And do they turn into a wave that tips us into something that we call a recession? Or do we just kind of, you know, get buffeted a little bit and, you know, we kind of have what we call the soft landing, right? Where we kind of manage to get inflation down without the big, you know, spike in unemployment and all the other effects that go with the recession. And that's, I'm feeling optimistic because of where we are right now. That said, I went and looked at a bunch of indicators before here and it was like, oh, you know, the, there's a, a, an interest rate spread that people look at that has in the past been somewhat predictive of recession. You sure. know, it's, it's literally the recession probability chart. Oh, okay. Uh, and there is now a roughly 40% chance of rec- That spread is saying that there's a 40% chance of recession by November of 2023. Okay. Last time I heard somebody talking about likelihood of a recession, it was Larry Summers saying 50%. So 40% is lower than that. Yeah, but it was basically zero a few months ago. It's moving up okay. uh, in oh, a okay. lot. But, you know, again, it doesn't predict it every time. There have been multiple instances where it has risen to the level that is at currently and then Uh come back down without a recession ever happening. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Jeff Meese, media technician at the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm here with Bryce Ward, making some predictions for 2023. I was reading some commentary this morning talking about economic inequality, and, you know, we've talked about that many times on this series, but the the, the thrust of the piece was that 
Actually, economic inequality has been on the decline over the last 10 years, roughly. Um, Peaked in 2007. Yeah. And so to the extent we think economic inequality is a problem for the economy, that the decline in it is, is, is maybe attributable to good policy, whatever, but overall, the argument is that that could lend more stability to the economy. Who gets hit you know, historically? It was lower income households. They got hit by the unemployment wave yep. hardest. They had fewer resources to absorb that loss of income while still maintaining consumption. And so they pulled back on consumption, and that was where we got the big reduction in demand. And if they have more money still sitting in their bank accounts, their wages are up more than yes. than for other people. And employers have just gone through this massive like hiring shock where they're trying to hold on to workers because they don't want to let somebody go and then be like, oh, crap. I want to go hire it again, and it's still bad. So there's still yep. this kind of recency bias in terms of, you know, I don't want to go through that. So let's stick this out for a little bit longer. You know, the challenge is, is that maybe keeps the demand from falling where we need it to. Yes. And that means inflation doesn't go down. And that means we just keep going. And so, you know, that's the challenge. That's the, that's the line that we're walking, right? Wages are, I think, the thing that people are watching. Mm-hmm. That's where we don't know. And does the protection against the adverse consequences of a slowdown in demand I mean we don't get the slowdown in demand? Sure. So we just kind of sit, persist with higher inflation and we kind of have to figure things out? Or can we find the sweet spot of, yeah, I'll, I'll pull back. I'll pull back a little bit on my spending or whatever it is and get enough people to do that. And then, you know, the wage bargaining cycle comes and it's like, okay, I don't need to sit here and say, I need, you know, a 6% raise because I don't think inflation is going to keep being this high and, you know, wada, yada, yada. Um, so, you know, that's the hopeful side. You know, if if it's going to happen, I think the conditions, are, you know, like that buffer matters, right? It, that That's what will kind of allow, that's the cushion. So, you know, the question is, is, is the cushion too soft uh, or is it just right? And we'll just kind of glide down and a year from now, we'll be sitting there saying, yeah, inflation's at two and a half percent, three percent. It's on the right track. We didn't have a recession. You know, we kind of cleaned up a little bit of these messes here and there from the, you know, change in interest rates. But it looks like we're on solid footing and ready to go forward back into, you know, something that is growth without inflation. So if I were to distill your 2023 prediction for the economy into something, a one sentence answer, it would be something like the economy will remain messy, but maybe a little less so. Either it will be less messy, and I think that's the more likely outcome, or it will get more messy, but it will be the kind of mess that I mean, if we have a recession, it's not going to be the Great Recession. It's sure. going to be a normal recession. And yeah, fine. barring any unknown shock. Yeah, yeah. We're more on the like, oh, this would be like a 2000 recession or yeah. a 91 recession, which are, you know, they're recessions, but they're kind of over pretty quick. And, you know, it's like a little blip. We readjust and then we get back to things. So, you know, I think that's possible. Okay. So let's shift uh, in our remaining time to a couple other areas. Uh, politics. You know, I have I have maybe a delusionally hopeful prediction, but I predict that, you know, we will see kind of a continuation in what I hope was the beginning of a trend in the 2022 election, and that is sort of the, the reduction in the salience of identity politics. 
and tribalism. I think that, you know, we saw in the 2022 election that generally candidate quality mattered and candidate rationality mattered. Uh, Voters appeared attracted to candidates that were proposing solutions to actual problems. So I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll start to think about policy. I think these economic factors that you mentioned play into this in a big way. You know, if the economy continues to be messy but going in the right direction, if inequality is on the uh, decline, people have less to be angry about. And you can, you can whip them up about a, a narrower range of things. So that means that the tent gets smaller for that type of politics. Anyway, that's my hope is that we'll kind of – maybe unwind some of this extreme polarization that we've uh, been experiencing the last few years. I'm hopeful as well, although maybe for different reasons. Sure. There's a school of thought that says that the identity politics is a function of post-materialism. Right? Mm. So the economy doing well allows us to fixate sure. on these absurd it's a luxury, things. Right? Why well, I think we will hopefully see less of it is for at least some margin of the population, I think they're tired of it. And as you pointed out, it didn't work. And politicians are businesses. They're selling a product and they look at the market and when they see a product that's not selling, they will stop supplying that product. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is really, you know, the supply side is easy to understand, right? It's, does this win? Does this work? Our hope is that it works in fewer, for fewer people and for fewer places. Yeah, I think that there's a, significant swath of the population who we have immunity. I saw this metaphor. Somebody talked about it with respect to China, both with their zero COVID problem, right? They tried to repress and now they're dealing with, oh, we didn't create natural immunity. The rest of us did. They also do that with their media, right? They repress, repress, repress. Whereas we've had to deal with all of the bad effects of social media, Mm -hmm. but we're learning, we're learning how to be humans in a world. Now, it's slow and messy, and perhaps we'd be better if we didn't have to go through this. But at the margin, more and more of us are learning, and the researchers are helping us learn how to not fall into the traps, right? For me personally, I no longer will identify, I will no longer use the word I am with respect to any political label. Yes. Right? It's not an identity. I don't want it to be an identity. I don't think having it as an identity does anything productive for me. I am optimistic that we are moving in a direction of where that message is less popular. It will still be out there, but it will be less popular and less likely to then dominate everything. Okay. Last round here. Any other areas where you want to go out on a limb and and offer a hot take as to what we can... uh... Bryce, you never offer hot takes. I your, your takes are as cool as a cucumber. <laughs> so what do you got? So migration into Montana in the past two years uh, has literally been off the charts. If you look at any one year, even two year period in this century, we're double what any year was. And on average, if you just average it, we're three times the average. I think that will continue over the long run. Remote work is a big change to how regional economics works. Now for this year with high interest rates making buying housing maybe less desirable. It may be a buying little Buying and building. Yeah, it makes it maybe a little bit of a more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we won't see it as much and we'll see if that derails the momentum that, you know, we have, but you know, over the course of a decade 
who knows exactly how much remote work will persist, but it doesn't take that much in a state the size of Montana to make a huge dent, yeah. right? Because yeah. the, the simple story of a regional economy is, I think it's 75% historically of households have workers. Those households, almost all of them, you know, again, pre-pandemic, had to get a job where they lived, you know, so they had to be within a commute. So the thing that constrained growth in Montana was, well, how many households are fully footloose, you know, which is small. There's retirees, people with money, and the handful of remote workers that existed pre-pandemic. And then, oh, well, what kind of opportunity could you produce in Montana? And we, you know, you could produce opportunity in Montana, but it just, you know, it was somewhat limited by the size of the state. But when you say to, it's roughly, it's 30% of workdays are now completed at home. Now, some of those are hybrid. Uh, but even hybrid workers can work here and commute. I know people that did that before the pandemic. Yeah, And it's ultimately, there's 15 million additional households that have remote workers relative to 2019. 10 million of those are fully remote, as in every worker in the house works from home. So that's 15 times the size of Montana's population is now footloose. Those households, even pre-pandemic, were 40 to 50% light more likely to move across state boundaries, as you might imagine. So, yeah, it's it's that's the challenge. It's just, you know, there's this big rock that we threw into the pond in Montana of demand for Montana is going to be higher. And, you know, and then there's all these side demands, right? Like I hear about these occasionally, right? Like the people who work for these tech companies that are just nomads. I'm going to be here for the sure. season. I'm going to be here for the summer. And... You know, that's demand for Montana too, right? Mm -hmm. The demand curve for Montana has shifted out. Uh, I feel very comfortable saying that whatever the demand curve was before, and it was growing, it was, you know, we are now shifted onto a new trajectory. Mm -hmm. And how much, that remains to be seen. But when you shift out the demand curve, you get the good part. Okay, more demand is good usually. But there's also the hard part, which is... When there's more demand, some things I can't increase supply to meet demand. Yes. And that's the challenge, right? Is I can I can build more houses, I can build more roads, I can't create more lakes. Yep. And you can't create more space to put those houses and homes and that's all right. of that. So yeah. there's trade-offs there. And those are real trade-offs. And so, you know, my prediction for Montana, maybe not this year, but certainly over the decade, is we were always having this has been going on forever, really. But, you know, certainly through the various booms in the 70s, the 90s, even the housing boom, and what was going on before the pandemic. Montana was in a relatively strong growth period. So we were already having these conversations. But when you say, I mean, there's already 28,000 more people in Montana than had we grown at the rates pre-pandemic. You know, we normally would have added 10. And, you know, that goes on for even a few years. All of those conversations about how do we manage the truly scarce resources, rivers, the lakes, the water, the wildlife, all that kind of stuff, those become very salient um, and very, very difficult to have. But we're going to have to figure it out uh, because, you know, the consequences is that we just kind of stumble our way and we ended up in a world where we're it's all cost and no benefit or mostly cost and fewer benefits. And what we want to find is, well, how do we get the most benefit out of this? The increase in opportunity, the increase in consumption amenities, all the things that come with more people without having to then move into a world where, you know, the scarcity is really salient and those fights are really salient and they become destructive. Well, 
a lot to work through in the year ahead and the decade ahead and in all of what's ahead. Bryce, in the next month, maybe we'll talk a little bit more specifically about your upcoming um, keynote on the BBR Economic Outlook Tour. But until then, I think we have a lot for listeners to think about and a lot to be hopeful around in 2023. So, um, yeah, thanks for being here today. Here's hoping for another good year. And, uh, you know, here's hoping for another five years of doing this. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.